Hello and welcome to the Anchor Sunday Sermons podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help guide and grow you in your walk with the Lord by providing an in-depth study of God's Word with our Sunday sermons here in this podcast. So please grab your Bibles and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with this week's message. Um, today is a little bit different. Uh, it's Mother's Day, and where I was going to land in Daniel 7 was smack dab in the middle of the, in the beast empire and the Antichrist. And I thought, well, I can't do that for Mother's Day, man, because I'll be making the same mistake Pastor Larry Wood one time did on Mother's Day. He totally forgot it was Mother's Day. Comes in, both barrels blazing, seven steps to hell right on Mother's Day. And uh, he tried to figure out why the crowd wasn't responsive to that. So he, anyway, he learned his lesson. So I, I will not do a Larry Wood-ism, and I will make sure we, we stop and we look at uh, the person of Hannah on, on Mother's Day. Now, what you're going to see with Hannah, uh, it's an applicable story to all of us, obviously, but um, it's a very simple story with profound implications. And let me explain this. The simple story is this, Hannah cannot have a child, and she wants to have a child, and uh, in that culture, in the Hebraic culture, having a child meant everything. It was the world to them because it doesn't just simply mean that they're going to have a baby. It meant that in your retirement, you had a person who would take care of you. That was their social security system was males. And so you wanted to have enough males that they could take care of mom and dad when they were older. And that was the key. So we wanted a bigger family and a lot of males to be able to do that because the women would be married off to other families. And so it was a big deal. So it's a, a whole social structure that, that was involved here. It was retirement. And again, one of the, let me uh, mention the social structure. The social structure in Israel was this. And it didn't come from the Bible, okay? It came from the Jewish tradition that if you didn't have a baby, then you must have been cursed by God. And that was wrong. They shouldn't have did that, but that's so kind of like a cultural thing. And if you had a bunch of babies, then you must be blessed of God. It would be the same thing in the, the prosperity word of faith gospel that's out there that, oh, if you have money, then you must be blessed. And if you're poor, you must be cursed. That, that, that's the prosperity gospel. It's wrong. And believe it or not, that prosperity gospel was in the days of Jesus when they also had the same teaching. The rabbis would teach if you were wealthy, then you were blessed of God. And if you were poor, you were cursed of God. That's why Jesus told John the Baptist, the gospel has reached the poor. And so there was a whole social status structure in there. So if you were a woman, you're on the bottom, uh, without a child, you're on the bottom rung socially. And so you must have done something wrong or your parents did something wrong. So it, it, it gave them a, a, a total like scarlet letter A, a on her, you know, it, it, it was, it, they were branded as cursed. It's not a good thing to do, see. So, but, but here's the underlying issue that I want us to bring out. The underlying issue is she wants a baby so bad. It becomes the all-consuming thing in her life that if she can have a baby, then everything in her life would be okay. If she just had a baby, a baby boy, then my life would be fine if I just had this one thing. And what she's going to learn is that's the very thing that's keeping her from having a baby. God is withholding from her because her attitude won't change. Now, the great news in the story is her attitude does change, and I'll show you the turning point. And she is given a baby, but it's not until she gets her attitude, her thoughts together, her understanding theologically what's happening, until she gets that figured out, she's not going to get what she wants. And that's a good lesson for us. Think about this, all the stuff that's going on in the world. There's a bunch of stuff I can't control, and you can't control. It makes me angry that I can't control it, but, you know, they're going to put on a digital currency on us. The New World Order's coming. Tracking devices are happening all over Europe now that's going to eventually come here. This is stuff out of our control. And, and here's what you could possibly say. If, if, if I could just live a life and have my agenda and not, not, uh, not have it threatened by what these people are doing, then I would be happy. Then I know I'd be happy if, if, you know, uh, if I'm going to get what I want out of life. If, you know, if I, 
I'm going to work my job. I'm going to retire at 65. And then I'm going to go to the Bahamas in retirement and stick my toes in the sand and drink iced tea all day. Guess it or what? Gone. It's not happening. It's not happening. Because of what they're doing, your whole plans for your future are going to be altered. And that's just the reality. And so some Christians are getting very upset that what they had planned for their life is not coming to fruition, nor will it come to fruition for their kids. Oh, I want my kids to have a nice career and that. Yeah, yeah you, the career you're thinking of, in most of the industries they're going to have to be in, they're going to have to be woke in order to operate in them. Otherwise, you're going to be lowered in your economic abilities because if you want to rise up the ladder, you better be woke is the, is the mentality now. And it's all major companies, right? So it, we're starting to realize, okay, it's affecting me. So what you have to realize is how bad are you holding on to that dream? How bad are you holding on to that wish hope of how I want my life structured, how I want mine to go? Because a lot of us are saying this, look, I already had it bad and I don't want any more bad anymore. I've already had it bad. I went through enough junk. I don't want to go through it again. And now, Brandon, you're telling me more bad junk is happening. That's out of my control. I can't deal with that. So people start losing it. They start losing the grip on reality, start losing uh, a grip uh, of being able to maintain, uh, if you want to say it, you know, a, a peace and calm about themselves, a like contentment. They start getting agitated. They're getting angry. They're getting bitterness, all this other stuff because their life's not going the way they want. And, and it's definitely didn't go early on in their, the way they wanted. This is a big deal. How do I overcome that? How do we overcome that? Because we're all having to deal with this of readjusting our lives to the new reality. Well, this is where I want you to see with Hannah. The thing she wants is the very thing holding her back. If you and I want this dream life, that will be the very thing that holds us back. So the principle we're going to work with is give back that which belongs to God. That's the overarching principle of the entire text. You will learn what that means by the end of this. But the principle is we have to give back that which belongs to God. And we will enumerate that as we go. Okay? Now, there was a certain man, Elkanah, very simple. And he had two wives. Okay, verse 2, I'm already in dysfunction. Okay? He's got two wives. Um, uh, didn't you read Genesis, dude? Well, the problem is coming out of the judges, and you see this with King David and going on into it, you know, even with Abraham. Um, they knew the created order. They knew what was happening, but they ended up still violating this principle. I know I, it, it wasn't coming from the Bible. It came from the culture. And so a lot of them accommodated themselves to the culture, and they would have multiple wives. It's still not a good thing, okay? Even though it was part of the culture, it wasn't a good thing. As you can see in this text, it's going to cause a lot of dysfunction. How? Well, the name of one was Hannah. That's the hero of the story. That's the one we're focusing on. And the name of the other was Penina. Uh, Penina. Um, she's a twisted sister, okay? Just to let you know. And Penina, guess what she had? Children. But Hannah had no children. Do you see the problem? We've got a fight going on in our hands now. Two wives, that's dysfunction, but one of them has children and one of them doesn't. And the one that's the one following God doesn't have anything. And the one that's not following God too closely is Penina. You think that already causes a problem already? Yeah, it does. This is the problem. When we compare and look at each other, what we'll typically compare to is other Laodicean Christians. We typically don't compare down to third world Christians that are in basements this Sunday or in Iran in a house having services uh, and they have to shut all the doors and windows so no one sees them having it. We will always compare up in comparison. And so as you can see, the two wives, one is has all what... what one has what Hannah wants, okay? So keep that in mind. Let me bridge this to current events. How so? The issue is how valuable a child is in the Hebrew culture. 
Because obviously the Hebrew culture knows that children are made in the image of God. They're prepared in their womb by God. And this is how valuable children are, right? So we're, we're, we're reading a story about a woman wanting a child because this is how valuable. She would never think of aborting her child. Never. Okay. But what do we have in our society? We have bloodthirsty people wanting to murder children. Okay. That's our society now. And now they're pitching a fit because of a leaked document that came from the, the court. I'm sure it's a leftist that leaked it. But um, anyway, they, they start doing their Antifa writings again. And they're projecting that this summer, once the Supreme Court officially comes out, that there's going to be more riots that you saw, like, you know, uh, in the summertime and all these places being destroyed and yada, yada, yada. But they're targeting crisis pregnancy centers. And they're targeting churches now. So here's where the first Antifa attacked. Of course, Portland. Where else? Right? Portland. For all the riots happened. They had the uh, section of city controlled by, by them. Um, anyway, so these Antifa groups, you see how they're dressed, come after a CP, uh, 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 crisis pregnancy center. They go after churches too this week. So they spray painted, my body, my choice. Uh, keep your religion off our bodies. And they vandalized church. Well, again, this is this a prelude, a foreshadowing of what's to come once the, the Supreme Court comes out with their official, uh, official declaration? Maybe. Maybe. Look what they've done. They're now, uh, uh, these leftist radical organizations are now targeting the Supreme Court justices. And uh, a leftist organization called Ruth sent us, uh, Ruth referring to Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who is very much for murdering children, even though she was Jewish and knows better. Um, anyway, um, these radicals have taken up the name, and now they're going to send them to the Supreme Court justice's house to do whatever. Storm, you know, they're going to threaten them, storm them, storm churches, and they're supposed to do it on Mother's Day. So we'll see if they do it today. They may hold back and do it another time. But anyway, uh, think about this. This is what the, the, their website says. Now think if you can parse this out with me. Our six to three extremist Supreme Court, supremist meaning we want to preserve babies, uh, routinely issues rulings that hurt women. How do they hurt women? Because they're hurting babies. You're killing babies, right? Racial minorities, racial minority. How, do, how does abortion help racial minorities? Because I know where they put Planned Parenthoods and I know the stats on the demographics. They put them in black neighborhoods and Hispanic neighborhoods. Do you know why? Because Margaret Sanger's dream was to eliminate black people and Hispanic people. It's a very racist organization. And 85% of the babies that are aborted are black. Huh. Also, it's supposed to help LGBTQ people. Well, they don't even have babies. What are we talking about? What are you talking about? They, they, they can't have babies. And then it's supposed to help immigration rights. Uh, Immigrant, what are you talking about? What rights, uh, a right for an immigrant or an illegal person to kill their babies? What are you talking about? We must rise up, force accountability uh, using diversity of tactics. And the tactics they're going to use are physical. They're going to come after and destroy and loot and pillage and go to people's houses and threaten them. That's what the idea is. Now, why am I bringing this up? Because here we are in the text where the issue is a baby. Having a baby, life, valuable. And our culture is the exact opposite. Our culture worships Moloch. Okay. So what the Israelites would do when they went, when, when they went rogue and the, the Israelites went pagan, they started worshiping Moloch. And how did they do that? Well, Moloch was this bullish frog looking thing, false god, demon. And what they would do is heat up the fire inside of the iron or the metal or probably brass or something like that, inside the, the idol, as you can see the fire there. And then what happened is that metal would get blazing hot because of that fire inside the thing. And what they would do is lay their babies on top of Moloch's hands and scorch them to death. Awful, right? You think, wow, that's crazy, man. That, that's so brutal. Uh, it's not even brutal if you've ever seen what they do in an abortion. 
It's, it's, they, they will pour acid on the child. They will cut the child from limb to limb as they're pulling the child out. It is the most horrific thing. We are no different in America as the Israelites when they were sacrificing the Moloch. No different. And these bloodthirsty people, let me put it on record. Everyone that is pro-abortion is a bloodthirsty Moloch worshiper. They are evil. I don't care how nice a person they are. At the end of the day, they condone murder. And that's where it puts them in a category of evildoers. In the story, there's no, I don't care if they're nice. You're evil if you want to kill children. That's what they're doing. Again, I need to bridge that over because we're studying a passage about life, how important that is. Anyway, in this overarching principle, to give back which belongs to God, let's now parse this out and what this entails. We must understand that we may not be spiritually, emotionally, or mentally, or physically ready to have something that we want, or even to have something removed. So let's deal with the first issue. Sometimes God holds back things that you want, and maybe let's say this is a good thing. Her wanting a child is a good thing, okay? You wanting something for your family might be a good thing. But you don't know how it would affect you because you and I may not possess the character necessary to handle it. And God's saying, I'm not going to give that to you because I need you, your character to develop more. I'm trying to do something in your life. And if I just gave it to you, it would ruin all the work I'm doing in your life. So many people say, I wish I had a million dollars. Okay, great. You know how many people that's ruined? given a million dollars to somebody who doesn't possess the character necessary to handle that would hurt them. Think about all the uh, Hollywood. Think about all the uh, NFL, uh, NBA, MLB. These guys get money and it's more than they, they can possibly spend in their whole lifetime. And what does it do? It ruins them. Look at all the Hollywood people. They're ruined. They're absolutely ruined. So is a lot of the, the professional athletes. They're ruined because you know why? They don't have the character to handle that. They blow right through it. I, I remember having a guy that worked at our high school when I was in high school at Delano. He was a janitor there. Okay? Now get this. He played for the Pittsburgh Pirates in the late 70s. Willie Stargell, all those guys, right? A lot of success, a lot of money. He lost it all because he couldn't handle it, and he was a janitor now. This guy had been in the pinnacle of Major League Baseball during the, with the Pirates during the 70s. That was when they were really hot, man. And he had seen all that stuff, experienced that. And he, he flat out said, I, I just spent all my money. We would just party women, drugs, whatever it might be, and that was it. That's where our money went. His character couldn't handle it. So sometimes God's, you, you're praying to God, God, give me this. I think this would be good for my life. I think I, he said, I'm not about to give you a snake that would bite you. Remember, Jesus said that. Would a good father give you a snake when you ask for bread? No, 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 I'm not giving you a snake. That was a snake, it would hurt you. And how about this? I have something removed. Oh, Lord, if you would just get rid of this in my life, I would be happy. And that's our constant prayer. And it goes unanswered. And it's like, no, it, uh, the thorn in your side stays in your, in your side. Okay? And you're saying, I want this out of my side. Nope, I'm not doing it. I need this thorn in your side to humble you and to prepare your character. So I'm not removing it. But see, here's the thing. If he doesn't remove it, or he doesn't give you what you want, how are you going to react? Are you going to get mad at him? Life's not fair. You're, are you going to bring before his throne? Well, so-and-so, Sally Two Trees over here, she's a, a, a nominal Christian. She's a Laodicean Christian. And man, they just keep doing better, better and better and prosperous, man. And I'm, I'm gutting it out. I'm in the trenches. I'm living paycheck to paycheck. I'm serving you. And the Laodicean person is getting more from this world than I am. What's gives? And God would respond to, to you like this. The reason they're getting what they have is because this world is rewarding its own. 
So a Laodicean Christian is a worldly Christian and they act worldly. Therefore, they will be rewarded worldly. But you are not of this world. And so you think the system that Satan has created is going to help you? Uh, it's going to hurt you. It's not God. It's the system is against you already. And God said, I'm not going to, I'm going to, if I gave you this, it'd make you worldly. If I took something away, you become worldly. And I don't want that of you. I don't want it to change your character. Have you seen, have you seen people that get what they want? They're at the top of their game. They become a CEO. They get money. They get whatever they want, the boat, the house, whatever. And they're not happy. It's not happy because it's not the right thing for them. But yet they knew it was this. If I had this, then I know I'll be happy. That's not how you find meaning in life, man. Let's continue on. And her rival also provoked her severely. Of course, of course. So when you got, well, you got two, two wives here, one's having babies, the other one's not. To make her miserable because the Lord had closed her womb. And that's, it, it's, it's not, you have to, that's an idiom, okay? It's not, it's not that God's closing her womb to curse her. He's holding off on her for a reason. So it was year by year that she went up to the house of the Lord, yet that she provoked her. So this rival wife keeps sticking it to her. Aha, I have children, you don't. You're cursed, I'm blessed. And Panina is not the kind of godly woman you would expect. She's just mean. She's evil. She keeps trying to hurt Hannah and, and bring it up to her face. She doesn't like Hannah. This is called spiritual jealousy. Hannah is a godly woman. Panina knows it. So what they do is they attack the godliness and try to try to project themselves that they're more spiritual because they have kids. It's a game. She's playing a game, but it's a cruel game, isn't it? But here's what you, you, you could probably say. Well, this is why, Brandon, I pray for the antagonist to leave my life. I don't want them in my life. I want God to remove them. Ah, why does God leave Panina in there to continue to harass her? Because she wants Hannah, he wants Hannah to understand the lesson. Hannah, you look at Panina and you envy her. You look and you covet what she has. She has children and you don't. I am putting that in your face to make you understand that's not where you find meaning in life because look what it's done to her character. Look at Penina. She's cruel. She's evil. She's surface. She's Laodicea at best. I don't want you like that. But does Hannah see that? Not yet. She doesn't see that. She just focuses on what she doesn't have. Talk about pro, uh, provocation. In, in essence, what you can see with the story of Hannah is Hannah could be a typology for Israel. And Panina could be the surrounding people that provoke her. So look what's happened this last week. Talk about Israel being provoked. Three Israelis were basically hatcheted by an axe from Palestinian terrorists in a park there in Israel, trying to get some fresh air. And they, they went to the, this park in Elad and killed three of the Orthodox men, leaving 16 children fatherless. Did you hear that on the news? No. Nope, you're not hearing that. But what's my point? It's there. Israel will always have provocation from its enemies, just like Hannah's having it. It's the same story. Look at this. Palestinian writers hurl rocks and firecrackers to Jews. And why? Because Biden says they provoked them. What was the provocation that Israel did that was so provoking terrorists to throw rocks at people and fireworks at people Oh, they're praying at the Western Wall. Boy, that's really evil. That's really agitating the Muslims, isn't it? No, they're just worshiping, trying to worship God at the Western Wall and praying, and yet the Muslims don't like it, so they start hurling rocks, trying to kill them. You see Pania here and Hannah? It's the same thing with Israel going on today, okay? It's the same principle. Okay, let's go back to Hannah. In this comparison thing, you must 
not allow yourself to compare at all. At all. It's it's a, a trap of the devil. Now, I'll, I'll give you another example of how forcefully the Lord feels about you and I comparing ourselves with other people, okay? It was after the resurrection on the Sea of Galilee, do you recall? He makes breakfast for them. He's going to give them the, the last commission. And he turns to Peter and says, hey, Peter, someday people are going to take you where you don't want to go, and they're going to outstretch your arms. And when you said to me a long time ago that you would die for me, I'll let that happen one day, that one day you will be martyred for me. So Peter's told this, right? The destiny of Peter is set. You're going to be martyred one day. Pretty heavy. Then John is with the Lord and and Peter's following and Jesus is walking with John and you can imagine Peter behind and he's listening, okay? So Peter says, well, what about him? What's his destiny? Is he gonna die like me? Is that what, is, is that what, what you have planned for him? There's a little jealousy going on here. There's a little envy, covetousness, because John is actually the closest, even though Peter's the leader of the disciples, John is the closest to Messiah, and there's a little bit of spiritual jealousy going on here. So he goes, what about this man, Lord? And you can imagine the Lord turning back to him And you know what he said, right? If I want him to remain, what is that to you? Sternly rebuked him. Now, what is it? What is he saying? It's none of your business. I have you doing this and I have him doing this. You just follow what I told you to do. Don't worry about him. Don't worry about anyone else. So if you were wondering about how the Lord feels about when you make comparisons, He's going to come right back at you and say, what is that to you? You do what I called you to do and don't worry about anyone else. Zip it. Zip it. Quit protesting. Quit asking if this is fair. And here's where you sustain yourself. He will vindicate you one day. He knows how life is unfair here. He knows that. He knows we live in a cursed world. We know that that people are going to do bad things to you. We know the world's going to reward its own. He knows that. But he tells you this. I promise you in the next life, in the kingdom, I will vindicate you. I will vindicate you. And you're living paycheck to paycheck. And if you store up treasure now, you'll be the richest person in the kingdom. If you serve me now, and you're in the trenches serving me, instead of sitting back on the sidelines like Laodiceans, I promise you, you'll be able to rule and reign. You'll be actually be a king and a queen in the next life. Don't worry about that, because they will be picking up bubble gum off the streets in Jerusalem, okay? They will be cleaning toilets if they make it. They will be at the lowest in the kingdom. Those who had the high life now will be considered the lowest, because they were worldly. They didn't handle the wealth. They couldn't take it, and they became worldly. So they become the lowest, least in the kingdom versus those who are the highest in the kingdom. He's saying to you, don't worry about what they have. I'm gonna vindicate you. I'll make it all right one day. You just gotta trust me. But the problem is, we don't trust him. The problem is, will Hannah trust him for her vindication? That one day, Panina will be put in her place. You trust that? Because if you don't, I can tell you what you will, will, will happen to you. You will doubt the justice of God. If you don't believe in his vindication, you will doubt the justice of God. And when you start doubting the justice of God, that he won't make this right, how come these, these people get away with things, then your relationship with God will start distancing. Because how can you believe and trust in a God that doesn't give you what you want? It'll go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Do you remember? Satan's temptation, if I can put it in this framework, is this. Look, he gave you all the trees. Why doesn't he give you this one tree? I don't get it, man. What is he holding back? Oh, that's right. He knows that if you eat of this tree, you'll become like him. He doesn't want that. He's holding back on you, even though he's given you all the other trees. It's that one tree, isn't it? It's that one piece of fruit from that tree. Or it's for Hannah, a baby. It's that one thing, right? 
that God's holding back on you. He's giving all this other stuff to you, but you're holding back and protesting because of one thing he doesn't give to you. And you don't even know the reasons why. And so what ends up happening is the person distances themselves from God because they think God's unfair. He's not just. And then they create a false God. So when you don't trust the justice of God, then what will you do? Then you will make sure you have the justice. And that person will turn into unforgiving too as well. Hatred, bitterness, all that stuff will pop out in them. Well, what do you mean? Well, if you don't believe in the justice of God, that means you have to right all the wrongs, don't you? That means you have to hold it over people's heads, that you have to be the one that doesn't forgive. You know what forgiveness is? It's not about, I forgive you what you did. No, no, it, forgiveness, releasing for, uh, a person to forgiveness is you release the penalty aspect of the forgiveness to God. But if you don't trust God and you don't think he's just, you're gonna keep the penalty there and I'm gonna make sure they get what's coming to them. How are you gonna do that? Well, I'm just gonna hold on till I see it. What if it doesn't come in this life? I don't care. I'm gonna go to my death, uh, my grave with this because I am not releasing the penalty over them. So the transfer to, re- to trust God is, well, you gotta trust God for justice. And if you don't, that's why you're unforgiving. It works like that. You can see how it corrupts you that quick. Therefore, she wept and did not eat. Now it's causing an eating disorder. Okay, she's having problems here. The focus is making her sick. The focus is making her stressed and anxiety-ridden because she doesn't have something. Now, here's another thing that you will get. Not only will you get an antagonist that always becomes a thorn in your side, you will get a fool in your life, Allah, Elkanah. Then Elkanah, her husband said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Talk about being checked out. This is a checked out husband, okay? Why do you not eat? Checked out. He knows, what has been observing from her? She, he, he should know she wants a baby. That's what this is all about. And you're the fool who brought in another wife in this situation. You complicated her life. You idiot. Why do you not eat? Why is your heart grieved? You don't know? That's how checked out you are? What are you, in your own little world? Or your own, in a, your own cocoon? You are a fool. And then look what he says to top it off. Icing on the cake. You ready for a foolish comment? Am I not better to you than 10 sons? Dude, you need to shut your mouth now. You're an idiot. She wants a baby, and you're saying, I'm better than a 10 babies. What are you, God's gift to, to, to women? Who do you think you are, Fabio? I mean, I don't know. What, what do you think you are? What an imbecile. Yeah, you're right. This is an idiot. This is a fool. Isn't that funny? She not only has an antagonist, but this fool has married another woman and says that he's so checked out of her life. He doesn't know her emotions. He doesn't know she has an eating problem. She doesn't even know, he doesn't even know what she wants. And he says, I'm, hey man, I'm, I'm stud here. Uh, you know, are you, why? So on top of the problems that she's having, she's got an idiot she's married to. I wonder why. Antagonist, fool. Here's the deal with the fools. Because you'll pray that the antagonist gets out of your life and you'll pray that the fools get out of your life. And God says, I'm not moving that fool. I'm not moving the antagonist. You're going to deal with the antagonist and you're going to deal with the fool because I want to show you through the fool and the antagonist what you're doing. Because without the fool and without the antagonist, you really will never discover your issues. So I have to bring them into your life so that you can see what you're doing. Now, if I just simply took them out of your life and gave you a baby, you learn nothing. And I'm not gonna have a spoiled child like this. You'll learn nothing if I give you what you want. So I'm gonna keep them in your life to keep probing you until you wake up to yourself and recognize what you're doing in your life with me. That's why he keeps the antagonist in your life and the fool in my life. He wants us to wake up. So here's the issue. You must not allow yourself to be bitter because of what you don't have. Because you'll get envious, you'll get depressed, uh, angry. Anger is a big deal. 
um, due to our social standing in the world, whatever it might be. And in her situation, her social standing is at the bottom of the barrel if she has no kids, right? So she's going to become bitter and envious and depressed. And she's had already has an eating disorder. Well, let's explain this a little bit. If you allow yourself to go there, anger, bitterness, whatever, I can tell you where anger will take you, okay? Anger, if used properly, is a, a tool to get you motivated to do the right thing. That's when Jesus was angry and he whipped them out of the Temple Mount. That's anger being properly channeled to do positive things. It's, it, anger's there to, like someone attacks your family, anger's there to protect your family, to guard your family, to guard that which is valuable, right? So it ends up happening, what happens with anger, in this sense, you will misuse anger and then vent that anger to other people. And this is how you destroy other relationships with other people. Okay, let me, let me go a little bit further. So in the process of me getting angry and seeing the world as unfair, two things will develop inside of you. Perfectionism and idealism. Perfectionism means everything has to go according to my agenda. I've already been messed up in my life. Now I'm going to create a box and everything must fit in the box perfectly. And then I must be uh, idyllic in the fact that everything that I plan is idyllic and must be this way. Not just perfectionism, but idyllic. If we take a vacation, it's got to be the perfect vacation. If we have a meal, it's got to be the perfect meal. If we have, we, we do something, it's got to be perfect. Perfect all the time. And it's got to be ideal. Like Martha Stewart's, you know, uh, Thanksgiving, Christmas holidays, whatever. It's got to be like that. Okay. But you know what happens when you're like that and others are around you? They can't stand you. Because guess what a perfectionist will do if they don't get their way? Guess what an idealist will do if they don't get their way? They complain. They gripe, they pitch fits because nothing ever matches their standard. And as far as relationships are concerned, the way they will handle their relationships is through law and not grace. You got to have truth and grace, but they will handle it simply by law. What do you mean? They will say, I will do good to you if you do, if you do good to me and vice versa. Because in their world of perfectionism, because they're angry, if you mess up one time, you're out. You're out. So they don't understand the human condition and the fact that people are going to disappoint you. People are going to sin against you. They're going to do things you don't like. And that's where your measure of grace and truth comes in. But there's no grace in their relationships. That's why they cut everybody off. That's why they isolate. And they have no friends at the end of this because people keep disappointing them. And in their perfectionist, idealistic mindset, they can't handle it. So they end up being isolated because of that. And they will isolate themselves from the Lord, as you can see. Let's watch what happens. So Hannah arose after they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh. Shiloh is where the original tabernacle was when they came out of the desert. It was there for like 400, 450 years before David eventually buys the uh, Temple Mount area. And then they eventually put the, uh, the tabernacle there. And then eventually Solomon brings the temple there. But it was in Shiloh, Shiloh. Um, for, for all that time. So anyway, Eli is the high priest there. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the tabernacle of the Lord. And she was in bitterness of soul. I wonder how she got that way. Bitterness of soul. Again, what does she want? A baby. And because of the baby, she's in bitterness of soul. Huh. It's corrupting her. Her desire for something is corrupting her. It's making her bitter, angry, all that resentment. Anyway, she did the right thing and prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. She's in anguish over not having a baby. Now, again, she's bringing this before the Lord, but what is her prayers? Give me a baby. This is where James comes in, chapter four, and says, why do you pray and you don't get what you want? He goes, because you pray amiss. He says, you know, you pray amiss because the things God would give you, you would spend it on yourself. And that's what James is saying too. It, it, it works hand in hand. So you're going to get into this state where you're in anguish and bitterness of soul, and you're still going to 
petition God for what you want. And look what it's doing to you. You're obsessed. You're completely obsessed, Hannah. Something's not right. But here's a little turning point that starts happening. Then she made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant. I keep hearing the same thing, maidservant, maidservant, maidservant. Do you hear that? It's a clue. It's a clue. It's what Mary said. I am your handmaid or I'm your maidservant to the Lord. Remember that? Huh. What does that mean? There's a turn. It's a condition. If you, if you will, if you will. Ah, what's the turning point? She is now understanding that it may not be the will of God for her to have a child. And she's starting to get to the point where she can submit to her course of life that Yahweh provides for her, whether she give it, get, he gives her a child or not. And then when she says maidservant, maidservant means I am your servant. You tell me what your agenda is. I don't tell you what my agenda is. I am your servant. And she says it three times. When you see something said three times in the Hebrew, it means she's making a very clear point. I am giving up my claim to what I think would make me happy. I'm just your servant, and a servant has no rights. You tell me what you want for my life. Here's the, here's the, 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 the contract of my life. I'm going to stop writing the narrative that I want, and you, you write it. I'll erase all the junk I put in my life and you write the, the script, Lord. That's what she's saying. And then when she says, remember me and, and not forget, that's a Hebrew idiom. It means take positive action towards me. Remember the thief on the cross said the same thing. Remember? Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He wasn't thinking that Jesus is gonna forget. He already knew he got saved. He knows Jesus is the God man making the sacrifice on the cross. What he's saying is, when we're in the kingdom, take positive action for anything I have done. Obviously, he's saved, but he's asking for rewards in that sense. Anything I can possibly do, even while I'm on the cross, reward me for. Take positive action towards me. What is he going to reward him for? Because he actually declared who Jesus was to the other person. He will be rewarded for that, even though he had a short time on the cross. Six hours, right? Amazing. And uh, and I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. I will actually give him back to you. And then she does a Nazarite vow. A Nazarite vow, no razor shall come upon his head. They didn't cut their hair and uh, they didn't drink wine or any alcohol. And that was a, a highly dedicated individual. You could take a Nazarite vow for a period of time, which most people did. In his sense, he will forever take a Nazarite vow and she's gonna give back to him, to the Lord. There's the principle giving back which belongs to the Lord. The reason she got there is she realizes it's the Lord's call, not hers, whether it's appropriate to have a child or not. And she's okay with it now. But she says this, if you decide in your will to finally give me a child, I'm giving him back to you. He's yours. Now, this is not just simply a, a mental ascent, oh, he belongs to the Lord. No, no, she will physically give him back to the Lord, which meant that she will give him in dedication to the service of Yahweh for the rest of his life. He will eventually leave her, is the idea. Now, what happened in the Hebrew culture before the Levitical priesthood was established, the, uh, the uh, God made a commandment that they were to give their firstborn sons to him, animals as well. But the firstborn sons would then serve Yahweh. But then the little Levitical priesthood was brought up. And then so the Lord made an exception to the clause. You still had to dedicate your child and you could give him over to the uh, temple precincts to worship, but you could redeem him back by five shekels. So if you had five shekels, you redeem your child back. You would do the dedication ceremony, but redeem him with five shekels and he'd come back into your house. She's not doing that. She's going to give him completely over to help the tabernacle. Okay? So that's her mind. But what, what do we see in here? 
the very thing she wanted, she's willing to give back. Bingo! Until you're willing to give up your claim on what you want in your life, you're not going to turn the corner. You've got to be willing to give up that claim and say, it's not mine, it's his, whatever he puts in my hand, whatever he takes out, it's fine with me. What did Job? Job learned this lesson, didn't he? Naked I came into the world and naked I shall leave. You didn't bring anything with you, Job. None of this stuff is yours. You're just a steward. And Job would say, uh, going blank here. He said, uh, the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Right? Either way, his hands are open. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So whatever he puts in my hand, whatever he takes out, I'm still going to bless him. She got there. She's got there. That's where Job was. That's why he didn't curse God. That's why he didn't curse God. He got there. He's willing to accept the will of God in his life and be okay with it. Because it's for his betterment. It's for his good. So the turning point, you got to release your claim. What are you asking God for? That he's not given you. You think it would make you happier. You think you would have a better life. Have you released it yet? Okay, releasing it. Or how about this? You've asked him uh, to take something away from you. And he's not. Are you okay with that staying with you the rest of your life, maybe? That thorn in your flesh that will never leave. How about this? We must accept and trust the will of God for the things we cannot control. Now, here's the thing. Responsibility has to do with what you can control, what you can fix, right? We don't sit on the spiritual couch and just let things happen. Anything in my control, I'm responsible for fixing. Same thing with you. But I'm talking about the things you can't control. Hannah cannot control whether she can conceive or not. Only God can control that. Think about what's happening to us as a culture. There's things that are completely out of our control now. We, we pray that God stop it, but he's not, is he? Because we see there's, there's a bigger picture going on here. We know prophetically where it's ending up. You can't stop what they're doing to the economy. You're not going to stop the digital currency. You're not going to stop the new world order. So then what am I responsible for? What you can do. Leave the rest over to God. And we'll say, well, Lord, I don't know. It's going to damage my life. It's going to, yes, I know it will. But God's saying, that is my will for you. I'm okay with it damaging your plans for your life. I'm okay because I have another plan that's better for you. Now, you think back in your own life, you know, none of us would want to re-experience the bad things that we went through. They stunk. You think about it and you think, I, like, I'd never do that again, man. I, I can tell you that right now. It's bad stuff. I don't want to go through that. I don't want to experience that. But when you reflect on, you think about it a little bit differently. Can you admit that it made you who you are today? Can you at least see that? That without that happening to you, you would not be here. You wouldn't be at the place you are spiritually without that. Your character would not be the character had you not gone through that. God is saying, look, take a look at your life. They meant it for evil, but I meant it for good. I brought good out of this. I helped you get through this and made you who you are today. Otherwise, you would be missing elements in your character. And, and furthermore, I have more work to do on your character. I have more work to do in you becoming more like Christ. So guess what? The heat's going to get turned up here in a bit. And you're going to go through it. But what I what's going to come out of is, is a pearl. Through the affliction, something beautiful will come out of it. And so I'm allowing this in your country. I'm allowing you to go to a digital currency. I'm going to allow it because I'm going to refine you through the fire. And what's going to come out is pure gold. That's what she, ha she understands. Then they arose early in the morning, worshiped before the Lord, and returned and came to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. Remember, he took positive action, and now she's going to conceive. So it came to pass in the process of time that Hannah conceived and bore a son and called his name Samuel. 
saying, because I have asked for him from the Lord. Samuel, we say it in English, Samuel, but in Hebrew, the way you pronounce Samuel's name is Shema'el, Shema'el. Now, his name comes from two Hebrew words, and she named them for this reason. The Shema is, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord your God is one, right? The Shema means hear, hear, Israel, hear. So part of his name means to hear, and the other part is El, Samuel, or Shema El. God hears me. Is that, that's what his name is. God hears me. Shema'el is how you would pronounce it in Hebrew. Because she's asked and he heard. Now the man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and his vow. And here's the vow, the vow of dedication. You've got to dedicate that child back to the Lord and then um, either pay the shekels or give the child over. But Hannah did not go up for she said to her husband, not until the child is weaned, then I will take him and he may appear before the Lord and remain there forever. So basically he's saying, I'm going to fulfill the vow, but in three years, because I want to make sure he can eat on his own when I hand him over to Eli, the priest. They will, they will take care of him. I'm done. I, I, I relinquish my control of that which does not belong to me and I'm giving him back to God and Eli will take care of him, not his mom. Do you understand how she went against her maternal instincts? Because of that, in order to dedicate him back to the Lord? Oh yeah, that's called sacrifice. So Elkanah, her husband, said to her, do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him three years later. He's only three when she sends him to Eli. Only let the Lord establish his word. So even a, a, a fool like Elkanah is like a dog, a blind dog who finds a bone every once in a while. So he says something nice. He says something good now, even though he was checked out. He goes, just make sure you fulfill your vow, okay? After three years, just make sure you do it. Uh, we don't want to get it, go against the Lord on this. Then the woman stayed and nursed her son until she had weaned him three years. Now when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, with three bulls, one ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh. And the child was young. He's about three, maybe going on four, little guy. Then they slaughtered a bull and brought the child to Eli. Now, here's what you're looking at all this. Do you notice all the sacrifices in there? Okay. Three bulls, ephah flowers, skin of wine, uh, slaughtered a bull, all that stuff. Now, that was required according to Mosaic law. Okay. But what's the principle behind it? In order to give that which belongs to the Lord back to him, it must come with a heavy sacrifice. That's the idea. You're going to sacrifice. Samuel is going to become a living sacrifice to the Lord, as is she, by giving him back. And the crucial issue in all this sacrifice is she's giving up one particular thing that's imperative for us. And you're going to be asked to sacrifice it as well. If you want God's plan for your life and not your own, if your hand is open for him to put it in and take out whatever he wants, you must sacrifice this one thing. And I'm going to ruffle feathers. You've got to give up your control of things. End of story. You crying, trying to control your life is what's getting in the way of God controlling you. Your agenda, your mindset, your plans are not submitted to the Lord and it's working against it. So that's what Hannah was doing. Her plans were hers because she wanted to control the situation. Give me a child like he's a genie in a bottle not realizing the child would damage her because she didn't possess the character necessary. She only possessed the character necessary when she did the turnabout and she repented of it. So here's what you're going to have to be willing to give up, a false sense of control because that's all it's ever been. It's never been that you and I can control anything. It's a false sense of control. And God's saying, are you going to give that up? Are you going to submit to my control over your life? Now, he, you're not a puppet or anything, but 
the way he's organizing your life, the way he's channeling your life. Are you okay with that? Are you in protest of it? Are you mad at him? Are you letting him do that? Because your anger is coming from your control. You're trying to control God. You're trying to control your life and how your life goes. And you're on the wrong path. That's us without God. Captain of our own ship and we're sailing into a tidal wave. How's that going to work for you? You're going to be destroyed. So you better take the hands off that wheel and let God captain that ship because tsunamis are coming our way and only he knows how to get through the tsunamis. I'll end on the story with Victor Frankel because what I'm really driving at here is how to find meaning in life, okay? You don't find meaning in life by your agenda. You find it through a person. This is Viktor Frankl. Um, he was, he was, he's a well-known author. He wrote a book, Man's Search for Meaning. It's very good. But Viktor Frankl was a Holocaust survivor, okay? And so before he uh, was arrested and put into the concentration camps, um, he sewed his notes for this book, A Man's Search for Meaning. All his notes in that book and his, and, and his ideas, he put them on like one paper so he could remember it. Once he got out, he would write this book. He put all his notes about how to find meaning in life, okay? He took that note and he sewed it into his coat pocket so that when the Nazi guards checked all his pockets, they would never see his his information there. It, they would just, you know, have their film uh, inside the coat and then nothing was there, but it was inside the lining of the coat. Well, here's the problem. If you recall and study history, when they took Jews in, they stripped them of their clothes. So they stripped Victor of that coat that he had with his manuscript inside of it. And, and, and the clothes the teeth, uh, the gold teeth and all this stuff was used for uh, financing um, Hitler's war. It was part of his, um, part of his war chest was funded by stealing from the Jews, okay? And so that's what happens to Frankel. So Frankel's standing naked, nothing on him. And all his search for the meaning of life had went away. So then he was given a coat. This is a typical prisoner's coat. You'll see them in all the Holocaust museums. And this is a prisoner's coat. He was given one of these coats and a pair of pants. As you can see, the kids were dressed in those coats and stuff like that in pants. But here's an interesting twist. And here's what God wanted to say. And I don't think it's a coincidence. So he was given that coat. And apparently, the guy who owned the coat before he was sent to the gas chambers and died. So he's got this guy's coat. But when he checked the inside of the coat pocket, the guy had left a Hebrew prayer book page inside that coat pocket. Just one page and the Hebrew prayer, prayer uh, scriptures and prayer were on it. He pulls it out and he reads it. Now, I want you to think about this. He's writing a book for the meaning of life, and God gives him, through this dead man's coat, the real meaning of life. And it goes like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord your God is one. That was the first statement on the letter. Second statement. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Bingo! He lost everything. He thought he knew the meaning of life. And in the process of being stripped of that, God gave him truly what the meaning of life is. It is to know God and to love him with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. That is the essence of the meaning of life. It is not in the things we want, not of the things we don't have. It comes down to a person. All we ever need is Jesus. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Anchor Sunday Sermons. We hope that this message is a blessing to you 
and helps grow you towards a more mature understanding of God's Word. Rock Harbor Church has recently started a second podcast called The Anchor Bible Study. It's filled with past and continuing Bible studies preached during our Wednesday evening services. If you enjoyed this message and would like to hear it, please check the description of this episode or search your favorite podcast streaming services for the Anchor Bible Study. Support for both of our podcasts comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Until next time, remember, keep looking up, for our redemption draws near.